You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them there. We're going through the book of Philippians, which has been an amazing study. Uh, one that if you haven't been challenged by it, then you're either dead or you're not listening. That, that's really the bottom line. If you can come and you can listen to these studies through uh, Philippians and not be challenged in your own heart and, and not be uh, arrested uh, and gripped by uh, these things, then, then there really is something wrong in, in your relationship uh, with Jesus. And so I, I would pray um, that, that these things, man, they wouldn't just be something uh, to hear, that they wouldn't just be, uh, you know, some, some nice thoughts for the week, but that you are actually uh, being challenged in how you're implementing these things in, in your daily life. And, and that these things are not just uh, going in one ear and out the other. And, and I know that I've been challenged uh, by the words of Paul to this church there in Philippi, which, uh, interestingly enough, was was probably a church, history tells us, uh, about the size of ours, maybe 100 to 150 people. That, it was a smaller church there in Philippi. It was a church that Paul had planted some 11 years previously, and now he's writing to this church, and he's challenging them uh, with some things, and he's he's speaking to them about joy. And as Paul writes this, he doesn't write this flippantly as somebody that's just, you know, been living the dream of a life, you know, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. That hasn't been Paul. It isn't like he doesn't know what it is to suffer. As Paul is writing this, he's imprisoned in in Rome, under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day and awaiting certain death. And so Paul knows what it is to suffer. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and read the biography of Paul as he describes the beatings and the shipwrecks and the going days without sleep and the whippings and the scourgings and being abandoned by all of his friends and going without any food. This, this was Paul's life. So he knows what it is to find joy in the midst of of difficulty. Sometimes I think that we read from these authors of the Bible and, and we think to ourselves, well, they really can't relate to us. Oh, they can relate to us big time. They, they know what it's all about to suffer. They know what it's all about to have failed relationships. History tells us that to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you, you had to be married. And so Paul, we know, was a member of the Sanhedrin. Paul, in the New Testament, as he writes, he talks about the fact that he's single. And so it, you know, it would stand to reason that at one time Paul was married, and that somewhere along the line, and I believe personally that it was probably at his conversion, that his wife took off on him. And she probably abandoned him because he became, in their mind, a crazy man. And, and she probably went to a rabbi and said, look, Paul has lost his mind. He's a fanatic for this Christianity that he once persecuted. And do I have permission to just, you know, leave this guy? And I'm sure that they said, yeah, you know, he's a detriment. And, and Paul knew what it was to have failed relationships, to struggle, 
to, to have a thorn in the flesh that he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that he doesn't tell us what it is. But I can guarantee you that it was significant. It wasn't like minor back pain, you know. It, it wasn't that uh, he had wide feet and he couldn't find shoes, you know. I mean, th- this was a big deal that, that Paul, some of you this thing, like where does he come up with this stuff? <laughs> That, somebody told me the other day, that's why I come back. I just want to hear what, you ha- what you're going to say. What's going to come out of your pie hole? That is what I am here for. But in, seriously though, Paul's thorn in the flesh was a big deal. He knew what it was to suffer. And he knew what it was to find joy in that. And that's why he writes... Really, if we back up to the first verse of chapter 3, our text is going to start in verse 4, but I want to read again verses 1 through 3, where he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. This is the theme of Philippians, to find joy. And he says, finally. Now, when Paul says finally, just ignore it, because like any good pastor, you know, when he says in closing, you know that means nothing. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Find joy in your relationship with Jesus is the idea here. You may not have much to find joy in, but we can find joy in our relationship with Jesus. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. It is very safe for us to hear the same things over and over again. Beware of dogs, he describes now, these Judaizers that had come into the church and had said, you know, Jesus is good, but you need to add this and this to it. And whenever you hear that, Jesus and something else, that's a problem and you need to, you need to run from that. That's legalism. It's, it's heresy. It's Jesus, period. Not Jesus and something else. And that's what the, G, the Judaizers were doing. They were adding works and the Mosaic law, and circumcision, and what you ate, and who you hung out with, that was added to the grace of God. And we know that when we add to the grace of God, we basically eliminate the grace of God. That's what Romans teaches us. That it's either or. And I like to kind of compare it to you're either a volunteer or you're getting paid for what you do, right? You can't be both. You either volunteer or you get paid. You're either on the payroll or you're not. And that was what Paul was describing for us. It's either your works and you're trying to earn your way to God or it's grace and it has nothing to do with you. And that's what Paul says here when he describes them as dogs, evil workers, and beware of the mutilation. He, he was vividly describing these legalists, these Judaizers who were perverting the gospel. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And we studied those verses last week in a message we called Joy in Relationship. If you weren't here, I encourage you to pick up that CD or get on the website and listen to that because it really flows in to our text this morning, Philippians 3, 4 through 11, and this is joy in Jesus. That we find true joy 
in our relationship with Jesus, in relinquishing everything that we might be putting our trust in. And that's something I want you to think about. Silently, as we, as we look at this text, I want you to think about what is it that you take pride in? What is it that you might have confidence in? What is it that you think you're superior to others in? That thing that you boast of, that thing that you have great dependence upon. And certainly Paul had dependence upon a lot of things. And, and that's the first thing that he describes is his dependence upon the flesh. He describes his dependence upon the flesh because he wants to make a point to these Judaizers. He wants to show them that, look, if you think you've got a reason to be all confident and cocky, well, I've got more of a reason. I've got more to boast in. So I don't really want to boast. It's not something I like to do. Paul says the, the thing he really wanted to boast in was Jesus and him crucified. But sometimes to make a point, Paul would talk about himself and he would talk about his past. And that's the first thing that we're going to see is Paul's dependence upon the flesh. But then we're going to see Paul's denial of the flesh. His denial of the flesh in verses 7 through 9. And then we see Paul's desire to know Jesus. And so three things that we're going to see in our text this morning. And so let's look at that first thing. Paul's dependence upon the flesh. Verses 4 through 6. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And so Paul describes his dependence upon the flesh. And the, he really gives us seven personal superiorities, seven things of which he could boast. Four things that were inherited, that things that he was born into very naturally. But then three things that were earned. Three things that, that he could really say that were about him. That he had accomplished in his life. And the first thing is that he was circumcised the eighth day. He was circumcised the eighth day. Now, that may not be a big deal to you and to, to me. Most uh, little boys are circumcised today. But this was a, a set day that it was done on. And, and it was a big deal in their culture. And it was also showing that he wasn't a proselyte. See, at that time, they didn't circumcise uh, baby boys. It wasn't part of any other culture except the Jewish culture. And so if you were circumcised, it would show that you were born as a Jew, that you weren't a proselyte, that you didn't come to it later, that you were born into that, that you were a pure Jew. And then he says he was of the stock of Israel. And basically what that means is that not only was he born a Jew and that he was a pure Jew, but that he was born to pure Jews. And that was a big deal. And then he says of the tribe of Benjamin. And this would be like saying that, that you are born into a special family, that you have a name that means something, 
that, that you have a name that holds merit and weight, that you can be proud of that. And, and Paul was born into this tribe that, that a lot of people would have wanted to be born into. This was a faithful tribe. A lot of Jews would have wanted to be born into this tribe because Benjamin was a warrior. Benjamin was the son of Jacob's favored wife, Rachel. He wasn't born of one of the concubines. He wasn't born of Leah, you know, weak-eyed Leah. Some, some people say cross-eyed Leah, you know. Whatever she was, she wasn't much to look at, and Jacob didn't like her. Remember, he got tricked into marrying her. And he woke up, and it was like, whoa, what happened here? I was supposed to have Rachel. And remember, there's no electricity and when they got married, they, they didn't like, you know, ride off in a limousine together. You would meet the, your wife in, in the tent, and it was dark, and somehow Jacob got fooled into it. And when the sun came up the next morning, he realized something has gone really wrong here. And, And Rachel was his favorite wife. And I mean, it created all kinds of problems in that family. You know, you want to talk about like Jerry Springer and these talk shows. I mean, you just need to read the Bible. Read what was going on in the life of Jacob and his wives and the craziness that was going on in his his brother-in-law and his, his uncle and his brother Esau. I mean, it was nuts. It was nuts what was going on. But Paul says, I was born into the tribe of Benjamin, the faithful tribe. The tribe that produced the first king of Israel, King Saul, who was Paul's namesake. You remember Paul wasn't originally named Paul. He was originally named Saul. He was named after the first king who was part of the tribe that he was born into. Paul says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul spoke Hebrew is what he means by this. And again, that's a big deal because you know that the Jewish people were persecuted at this time in, in, in really a, a radical way and they had dispersed all over the, the Roman Empire. They lived all over the place. And it really wasn't until like uh, the last 50 years or so that Jews have, have been coming back to, to their homeland in, in Israel and, and they're still doing that in droves, coming from places like Russia and the United States and Poland where, where they had dispersed. But at this time, they were, they were all over the place. They were up in Asia Minor. They were, they were over in, in Europe, in places like Greece and Italy. And that's why when, when you see the, the Passover and the day of Pentecost and these different feasts that were going on at the time of Jesus and, and into the book of Acts, and you see that Jerusalem was just like a hub of, you know, where people would be actually camping out in the streets and there was no room for them to stay. And, and the city would just be overflowing with people that had come from all over the place to come and worship. It was required of every Jewish male to do that three times a year. And this, this, what's called the diaspora, this dispersing of Jews all over the place, had created a loss of their language, the Hebrew language. Most Jews didn't speak that. They, they spoke Greek. But Paul could say, I speak Hebrew. 
Even though I was born in Tarsus, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I speak the original language. And that would have been a sign of someone who was highly educated, someone who was erudite, someone who was very sophisticated. Paul had the whole package. And not only does he boast about the things he inherited, he also talks about some things that he had earned. He says he was a Pharisee. These were the most extreme Jews. There were about 6,000 of them at this time. They were the elite. In fact, the word Pharisee means separated one. They believed they were better than other people. Not only were they better than the Gentiles, but they were better than the other Jews. They, they truly thought that. They were better than other people. They kept the law impeccably. Remember, Jesus was always dealing with the Pharisees, always dealing with with their hypocrisy and how they drew near to God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. They were always dealing with the, the Pharisees and how they were so legalistic. They, they would even divide their spices and, and tithe from their spices. Can you imagine going home and, you know, getting out your cumin and your sage and your thyme and, you know, dividing out your, your spices? That, that was where their minds were, that they had to approach God in their own efforts, and they gave to the penny 10%. Nothing more than that, of course. I mean, we're not going to give more, but to the penny, they kept the law. And they wore big phylacteries on their head, which was basically like a box with leather straps, and, and even some of the real Orthodox Jews still wear them today, and you can see them at the Wailing Wall. Basically what it was, it was a way for them to keep Deuteronomy chapter 6, which says that the word of God should always be on your mind. And so rather than just you know saying, yeah, I need to be meditating on the word, and rather than seeing that not everything in the Bible is literal, that we you know walk around like this, <laughs> that they went ahead and did that, and they, they put these boxes and they would put scripture in them so they could say the word of God is always on my mind. And then they would have these long, these long straps that would come off of the phylactery and they would wrap them around their, their arms. And you, you can see, again, Orthodox Jews that still do that. And they'll have all these straps. And that's because they were to bind the word upon themselves. And, and so they were, they were keeping what they thought was the letter of the law. 613 commandments that they kept impeccably. And Paul says... I was a persecutor of the church. Paul was a terrorist, is really what Paul was before he came to Christ. Paul killed people because they did not believe the way he believed. We call those hate crimes today. We call those kinds of people terrorists. You know, Paul would have been the guy that when you were getting on a plane, you're looking at him and you were worried. You know, you're, you're like, what kind of shoe bomb or razor blade does this guy have? That's the he was a fanatic. Paul was was literally insane about his religion to the point that he killed people and not just one, not just two, but dozens of people. In fact, when he came to Christ, he was on his way to Syria, to Damascus, where he was going to arrest people, where he was going to murder people and throw people in jail. Paul was not a nice guy before he came to Christ. Paul wasn't, you know, 
somebody that you'd really want to hang out with. He hated Christians so much so that he was willing to kill them. You remember Stephen? In Acts chapter 7, a guy that was one of the original deacons of the early church, and Paul was standing there assisting the men that stoned him. He watched as Stephen was pummeled with rocks the size of softballs. I think sometimes when we think of stoning, you know, we think of like little little river rocks or something, you know. Talking about softball-sized boulders. You're talking about one of the worst ways to die. As you would just be pummeled one after the other with these rocks. And Paul stood there feeling very justified and probably feeling very righteous that he wasn't one that was throwing the rocks. He was holding the coats of the ones that were feeling very proud of himself that he could motivate these men to be so passionate about something that they would be willing to kill for it. And Paul thought, man, what, a, what an amazing leader I am. Look at what I can get people to do. And Paul was rebuked by Jesus on that very same road to Damascus. And the first thing that Jesus said to him is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That was the first thing that Jesus spoke to him. Why are you persecuting me, Paul? That was a big deal. And Paul says, look, Judaizers, you think you've got something to boast in? Well, I was a persecutor of the church. Yeah, you're traveling around and you're telling people about your law that you keep. Well, guess what? I killed people that didn't keep the law. I just slit their throats. I left them for dead. So you want to you know what hardcore is? I'll tell you what hardcore is. You guys are nothing but a bunch of pansies compared to me. That, that's what he's saying. And then he says, I was blameless. Blameless in these 613 laws. 613 laws that Paul says, essentially, I kept perfectly. Now, we know that isn't true, but it, it was a, a figure of speech because they would also, this doesn't mean he was perfect, but it means that in the law, it was factored in that you couldn't keep the law, and so they would provide rituals and procedures for when you didn't keep the law. And Paul says, I kept all those things. All the sacrifices, all the offerings, I did it all. Blameless. And so Paul kind of talks about the things that he could have and was prideful about. The dependence he had upon the flesh. And I wanted you guys to think about the dependence you have upon the flesh, because it's not like Paul's. I mean, we read this list and we think, what does that even mean? You know, that doesn't resonate with me at all. But we, we find our pride in other things. We find our pride in our education or in, in how much money we make. You know, the kind of guys and, and, and even ladies, but more guys do this, just, just trying to, you know, boast and impress people you're talking to them for like five minutes and they're telling you how much money they make you know they're they want to know what you do for a living and and then then they you know minimize what you do and tell you what they do and how much education they have maybe you find pride in some of those things maybe you find pride in 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 how much uh you know people like you in, in your ability to uh, to get people 
to, to be friends with you and to like you and your, your personality. Maybe you find pride in your sense of humor. I don't know what you find pride in and what you depend upon in your flesh. Maybe it's your goodness, that you're a nice person, that you help people and, and, and that you've really never hurt anybody and, and that you've done your best. How many times do you hear people say, well, I've, I'm a good person. I've done my best to, to do what's right. And it's amazing how many people have that perspective. I remember my grandfather as he lay on his deathbed. My grandfather had been married multiple times, had, you know, cheated on his wives, was a gambling fool, hired prostitutes, was the just the biggest party animal that you ever want to meet. The first thing that my grandpa would say when he would come to our house, he lived in Sacramento, he'd drive up to Washington, and he would say to my mom, Sheila, make me a highball. That was the first thing out of his mouth. And it's some, you know, kind of a drink, you know, and he'd be drunk in, in a matter of an hour. The, the guy was insane. There on his deathbed, my mom says to him, Dad, I want to share the gospel with you. He said, Sheila, I've kept the Ten Commandments my whole life. That was his perspective. He honestly thought that he had kept the Ten Commandments his whole life. It's like, hey, bro, have you read them? Have you read the Ten Commandments? I'm not sure. Maybe we're talking about something different. Maybe we're talking about the Ten Commandments according to Las Vegas. It's certainly not the Bible's Ten Commandments. It's amazing what we can find pride in. And a lot of times we, we totally get it all twisted up in our mind. But what is it that you find pride in? What is it that you depend upon? Here's what Paul says we need to do with that. Look at verse 7 as he talks about his denial of the flesh. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. The things that were gained to me. All of the things. He, he now brings it down to where he's sharing with these Judaizers. He's sharing his heart with them. He says, look, I, I had a, a lot of reasons to be proud and to depend upon my flesh. But all of these things, the things that were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. In one instance, on that very road to Damascus, Paul realized the folly of his flesh. He realized the stupidity of thinking that he could approach God in his own merit. He realized that the law was not given for us to reach God. The law was given so that we would realize that we can't reach God. And there's a lot of Tower of Babels of our own creating. Remember the Tower of Babel? How they attempted to build a tower that could reach God. And it's representative, it's a metaphor for all religion. The attempt in your own strength to approach God. And you can't do it. You cannot do it. And that's why, you guys, we do not have a religion. We have a relationship. God's not interested in in having a religious experience with you. If you want that, there are lots of religions out there that will give you some kind of an experience that will make you feel good in your own flesh. You know what Christianity does? Christianity says your flesh is wicked and deprived and needs to die. Christianity doesn't tell you that you're a good person. Christianity doesn't try to take your flesh and make it something nice. That's what religion does. 
It takes your flesh and it says, okay, what can we do with this? Wow, this is going to be hard, but we're going to try. And we're going to try to remodel this and we're going to tweak this and we're going to, you know, make this look good. And it's like, well, that's as good as we could do. You know, look what we had to work with. That's what religion does. And, and a lot of people have religion. They're trying to take their flesh and make something good out of it. And God says, no, your flesh needs to die, and I want to create something brand new. I want to do something completely revolutionary in your life. So when the next time somebody says to you that you know Christianity is just another religion, can you stop them and correct them and tell them that it has nothing to do with religion? Can you tell them why that is and what the distinction is? Because far too many people think that this is just another religion. You guys, religion leads us straight to hell. It's, it's a relationship. And you know what? Far more people are going to hell because of religion than any sin that you can think of. Oh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's the, the deprivation of our culture. It's leading our, our youth into rebellion. Yeah, you know, to some extent. But you know what's leading people to hell by the droves every single day? Religion. Thinking that you've got it together. That's far more dangerous. And that's Satan's special little tool that he loves to use. He loves for you to think that you're a good person. He loves that. And he'll use it. He used it in Paul's life until Paul was arrested on the road to Damascus by Jesus. I mean, Paul had no choice. He was absolutely thrown off of the course that he was on as Jesus met him in a very powerful way. And all of a sudden, all the things that he thought that were so great about himself, all of a sudden, they were like, as Isaiah says, minstrel cloths. That your righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God. Literally in the Hebrew, minstrel cloths. We don't place a lot of value on minstrel cloths, I don't, at least I don't think. That's how Paul looks at your righteousness. God, here, here it is. Did I say Paul? I mean God. Here, here's my righteousness, Lord. Here's what I have to offer you. Aren't you so impressed? God, aren't you so pleased? And God says, man, it's filthy. It's opposed to me. You need Jesus. And see, as Paul met Jesus on, on the road, he didn't trade one religion for another. And I think that's what many people do. They trade whatever religion it was they were pursuing, and maybe it was the religion of, you know, finding pleasure. Maybe it was the religion of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, and, and now they've traded that in for a religion of their own making, and Jesus gets to be included in that. And it's about your goodness. And how many Christians do we know that are so impressed with the things they don't do and the things they do do, which is like do-do. <laughs> the things that they do. How many people do you know that just 
boast in what they do and what they don't do. And I don't have a TV and we only have one car and, you know, we live so simply. I remember this guy that, you know, his wife ended up leaving him. It's like, hooray for you, bro. You drove your marriage into the ground because all you would feed your kids is beans and rice because you thought you were living simply for the Lord. And you you thought that that God would, would somehow be so happy with you because you, you made your family live in a shack and, and you made them eat beans and rice all the time. And, and somehow that is going to make God so pleased with you. Because look at these Christians. Look at what they drive. Look at where they live. Look at the fact that they have a TV. Can you believe that? I'm better than all these people. And see, you, you don't have to... You don't have to be involved in some crazy religion to be religious. You can be coming to church. You can be singing the same songs. You can be reading the same Bible. But be in a legalistic religious relationship or not really a relationship at all with the Lord. You guys, you know what legalism is? Legalism is when you begin to place your focus on other people and you compare yourself with other people. Compare yourself with Jesus. If God is leading you to live a simple life and to not have much, then then praise the Lord for that. But don't have this self-righteous attitude that you're better than somebody else that doesn't do that. Is God leading you not to have a TV? You're better off for that. But don't talk about it all the time. You ever notice people that don't have TVs? They talk about it all the time. They talk about TV more than they would if they just had one. (laughs) You know? And then I love the guy, well, we have one, but we never plug it in. That's my favorite. (laughs) Paul's denial of the flesh. He, He says, man, all these things that I counted as such an amazing thing that made me superior to other people you know what i count them loss i count these things as loss and this word counted here it's an accounting term it means to to add up the facts and to come to a good conclusion and when you add up the facts of what you have to offer god of what you have to be boastful about of what you have to be prideful about guess the conclusion that we ought to come to is that, man, I got nothing. I got nothing to offer God. I'm no big deal. God loves me. He wants to have a relationship with me, but it's absolutely separate and distinct from anything I have to offer Him. And when I do try to offer Him my good works in my own strength, it would be like your child trying to pay you for Christmas presents. You'd be like, What? You give a gift to someone, you don't want something in return. And Jesus gave his life for you. He's not asking for us to come up with, you know, something that will make us worthy of it because nothing is worthy of it. Paul says, I counted all these things loss. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And so between verses 7 and 8, 
I think there, there's a gap, and, and, and that gap is your, your experience with the Lord. At first you come to Christ and you count your life as lost. You have to to come to Christ. You have to, to at least some extent say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've got nothing to offer you. Come into my life. But then as we begin to walk with the Lord, we see that we need to count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. In other words, if you want to know Jesus, which is our last point we're going to talk about in verses 9 and 10, if you want to know Jesus, and I mean truly know Him, then you've got to continually be counting your life and your flesh and the things that you take pride in as a loss. And not only the positive, but the negative as well. You count your whole life as a loss. That you're no longer worried about your past. And you're not talking about your horrible childhood. You're not talking about your, your spouse all the time. And how horrible it is. And if I could just get a new spouse, then I would be happy. You're not talking about your children and, and looking at other people's kids and thinking, man, I wish my kids were like that. And all bitter about life. You, you count all those things lost. You're not thinking constantly about the things that didn't go well for you. That your parents didn't really help you and you didn't get to go to college and now you have this horrible job. You're not thinking about that. You're counting all of that loss to gain the knowledge of Christ. In other words, until we count those things lost, we won't know Jesus the way he wants us to. Until we are willing to, to say, Lord, you're in control of my life. And yeah, I did have a horrible childhood. And that's truth. I mean, you're not going to you know, convince yourself that you had a good one if you didn't. But you're going to quit talking about it. And you're going to quit having it be something that gets in the way of your relationship with Jesus. I mean, hey, let's face it. I wish I had a dad that threw the football with me. That would ask me how I'm doing in school. I wish I had a dad that spent time with me and would come watch me play sports. I wish I had a dad that, that cared about me, period. But the fact is, I didn't. I wish I had a dad that would keep some of his promises, like one. I wish I had that, but I didn't. And so am I going to just you know, let it ruin my entire life? Am I now going to let it affect my relationship with my kids? Or am I going to say, you know what, I didn't have that, but now I have the opportunity to be a really good dad. Yeah, you know what, I didn't have that, but I'm not going to let it get in the way of the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus. Yeah, you know what, my marriage isn't really what I want it to be, but I, I recognize that I'm part of the problem. And that in reality... I need to find joy in the midst of this relationship. And I'm no longer going to use this as an excuse as to why I'm not serving Jesus, as to why he's not the passionate pursuit of my life. Yeah, you know what? I really don't like my job. And I don't like my boss. And I don't like the people I work with. But I'm going to quit using this as a reason why I don't serve Jesus with everything I have. And I'm going to quit using this as an excuse as to why I'm not pursuing him and the knowledge of him. 
Paul says, I count all these things lost. In fact, I count it as rubbish. Now, we hear that word rubbish, and it's pretty innocuous in, in the year 2008. But that word was, was pretty bold. That's what I love about Paul. Because I come by what I say honestly. Sometimes people raise their eyebrows at things I say, like, you can't say that in the house of God. (laughs) I hate that term, the house of God. What does that even mean? The tabernacle is gone, man. This is a building. We're the church. Beside the point. (laughs) But people say that. Man, I can't believe the stuff you say, bro. Well, look. Look what Paul says. I count them as rubbish. That word, it means refuse. It means dung. It's manure. You fill in the blank of whatever word you want to use. When they read that, they would have been like, whoa, Paul means business. He counts it as a pile of dog dew. That's what he counted his life before Christ. That I may gain Christ. That I may know him. And that's, that's the last point that I want to look at. Verses 10 and 11. We'll read verse 9 first. He says, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And so we don't earn our place with God. We don't somehow drum up righteousness. We can't do it. It's by faith. We simply receive what he gave us, and it's imputed to our account. God opened up your account. You gave him access to your account. You gave him all those fancy passwords and access codes and stuff, and you said, God, here I am. Here's here's my account, Lord. And it's got nothing in it. I don't know if you noticed or not. There's nothing there. And I realize that. And then you allow him to make a deposit into your account, to impute into your account righteousness, and you believe it by faith. And then you don't continue to walk around as if you're a pauper spiritually. It would be like if somebody deposited a million dollars in your account, and you just keep walking around as if you are having a difficult time paying the bills. God deposited pure unadulterated righteousness into your account? Are we living as if we're righteous in His sight? Now, we can't take the credit for it. It's nothing to do with us, but we get to live in that reality. Paul says it's by faith. And then he says, finally, in verses 10 and 11, that his desire is to know Jesus, that I may know Him. Verse 10. That I may know Him. And I think that most Christians would say, I want to know Jesus. I mean, we sing that song, you know, I want to know you, Lord. We, we sing songs about it. Take me deeper with you, Lord. Do whatever you want to do in my life. I relinquish everything. I surrender all. All to you, I surrender. And it's easy to sing, and it's easy to, to say But is the knowledge of Jesus truly the passion of our life? Is that really what we want? Because it's very easy to say, I want to know Jesus, but then do nothing to make that a reality. I want to know Jesus. 
It's just like the guy that says, I want to kill a big buck, but then he does nothing to make that a reality. You don't really want to kill a big buck. If you did, you'd make the sacrifices necessary. It's like the mom that says, man, I really want my kids to succeed, but then she does nothing to help her children succeed. You really don't want your kids to succeed. If you did, you'd be pouring into them. You'd be paying attention to them. People say, man, I want to know Jesus. Well, it sounds good, but are you making the necessary steps to make that a reality? And I look at my own life and I say, not really. Sometimes. But if I truly want to know Jesus, then these things aren't a sacrifice. And I don't act like it's such a big deal. It's just like normal Christian living. The things that we think are such a big deal today were just like taken for granted. That was just normal of what you did. You prayed. You read the word. You sought Jesus. You served him. I want to know him, he said. Remember when you were dating your spouse? For those of you that aren't married, maybe you're dating right now, or maybe there's somebody that you've dated in the past. Or you, Remember when, when you were just so in love, at least you thought it was love, but you don't realize that true love doesn't happen until about a year into the marriage. That's when true love begins to happen. Before it's like infatuation, it's lust, it's, it's being just stricken. Remember that feeling, though? There's nothing wrong with that. But you remember that feeling? And it was all that you could think about. It was all that you could write about. You wrote little notes. And Andrea says, what happened to that guy? What happened to that romantic guy that I met in Bible college? Where did he go? You know, I remember one time, Andrew and I were living apart. She was living in Bend, and I was living up in Olympia, and one night at like 9 o'clock, we were like three months away from getting married. One night at like 9 o'clock, I had the next day off. I, I drove all the way to Bend. You know, got there like 2 in the morning. I hit a blizzard on Mount Hood. It was like in, you know, November or something. And, you know, would I do that today? <laughs> you know what I mean? My wife's over on the coast right now. There's a blizzard. If she said, Ryan, can you drive all the way over here and get me? You know, she went with some friends. I'd be like, oh, man. I don't want to drive over the mountain. Can't you get a bus? You know what I mean? There was this infatuation. There, there was this strickenness. There was this just overwhelming emotion. And, and sadly, and I'm not saying that's good when it, when it wanes, and we need to rekindle those fires in our, in our marriages, man. But I'm talking about just using that as an illustration for our walk with Jesus, that when we first got saved, it was all we could talk about. It was all that we could read about. It was all that we would think about. And we were always at church and we were worshiping God. And then it just sort of began to wane. And years later, you're nowhere near where you were. 
And if there's a point in your walk with the Lord that you can think to yourself, yeah, I was more passionate about Jesus then. I wanted to know Him more then. I was in the Word more. I was praying more. I was seeking Jesus more heartily and passionately. I was giving more to Him, not only financially, but just my whole life. I was serving Him more. If there's ever a time that you can think of that that was true of you, and do you know what that's called? It means you're backslidden. It means you went backwards. We can call it whatever we want. But if you were here and now you're here, that's going backwards. And that's not good. We should always be going forward with the Lord. And so I challenge you, do you really want to know Him? Because if you do, you're going to make sacrifices to make it necessary. That I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection... Paul says, I want to know the resurrected Jesus. He said in Romans chapter 8, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead resides in me. And I want to live in that power. I don't want to live in defeat. I don't want to live in mediocrity. I want to live in the power of the resurrection. And then he says, the fellowship of his sufferings. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, I like the power stuff. But I don't know about the sufferings. And I certainly don't know about fellowshipping with my sufferings. Getting to know them. Having them make a difference in my life. That's what Paul means when he says the fellowship of his sufferings. It means you get to be acquainted with your sufferings. With that thorn in your flesh. That area of your life that has nothing to do with your or my stupidity and bad decisions. But that thing that is out of your control, that thorn in your flesh, that you just finally have to say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing in my life, but I just give up. And I want you to work it out. I want you to to work it into me. I, I want you to make me more like you through this thing. The fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. We really don't like that. And this isn't literal, physical death. That's the easy way out. It's a lot easier to die for Jesus physically than it is to live for Him daily. See, what what Jesus wants is a daily, dynamic relationship with you where you are dead. You're a living sacrifice. See, God doesn't want your flesh. He wants it to die. He's not interested in it. You know, dead things really aren't that valuable. God God doesn't want that. He doesn't want us to bring that to the table. God says, what I want is for you to die to yourself, to get out of my way so that I can work through you. So that I can do my work in your life. To be conformed to his death. And you know what's interesting is a hundred years ago or so and, and certainly back in, in the days of, of the Puritans and in the days of the Great Awakening over in England and Germany and places like that. Man, the books that were written 
Many of them were about death to self. Books like Calvary Road and Absolute Surrender and the Pursuit of God. And here's a little challenge. Go into the Christian bookstore, and I got nothing against the Christian bookstore, but go into the Christian bookstore and, and just peruse the shelves and see if you can find anything written in the last 10 years about death to self. It's a little challenge. See if there's anything out there. Oh, there's lots of self-help books that are shrouded in Christianity. It's like taking, you know, some self-help motivational speaker. It's like taking his rhetoric and, and inserting a little bit of Christianity into it. That's what it is. But the message of the Bible and the message this morning, you guys, is that we find joy in Jesus. And you know what Jesus said? Jesus didn't say, oh, goody, you are uh, my friend now, and, and I'm going to make your life happy, and everything's going to be perfect for you. I've got such good things in store for you. This is going to be so neato. That isn't what Jesus says at all. What Jesus says to you is, okay, you want to follow me. Man, that is so awesome. I want to have a relationship with you. And here's how it's going to happen. You need to take up that cross. You need to follow me, which means death to self. You read about the cross and you read about crucifixion. It doesn't sound fun. It doesn't sound great. But that's the calling that Jesus has for you and for me is death to self. And in that, you guys, in death to self, we will find true fulfillment. We will find joy. We will find purpose. We will find everything that we're trying to accomplish in every avenue imaginable. And they all lead to dead ends and disappointments. And Jesus says, look, here's how you'll find true fulfillment in life. Die to yourself. Get out of my way. And the awesome thing is, is for those of us that maybe are in that backslidden thing, and maybe you're, you're not taking up the cross and you left it behind somewhere, Jesus is waiting for you. Wherever it is you pitch the cross and you've been kind of going on your own, you know what I'm talking about. You've been on it your own. Jesus is just there. He's waiting by the cross. He's waiting for you to come back to that place to figure out where you left your first love. See, we don't lose it. You ever heard somebody say, yeah, I lost my first love? That's not what Ephesians, uh, the letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 says at all. It says you left it. There's a big difference. When you lose something, you don't know where it is. I lose my car keys all the time. Where are they? I have no idea. But when you leave something, you know where it's at. You know where it is, and you can go back and get it. And Jesus says to you, you know where you left me. You left me at the altar of the pursuit of money, or at the pursuit of some other relationship, or at the pursuit of a career, or at the pursuit of education, or at the pursuit of pleasure. You left me there and you pitched the cross and you've been doing your own thing, but I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for you to come back, to pick up your cross and to begin to follow me again. And that's why Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, 
He said, you know what? I'm knocking on the door of your heart. And if you'll open up, I'll come in and I'll fellowship with you. And we use that as an evangelistic verse, that people need to open up their life to Jesus and, and, and get saved and come to know Christ. And that's, that's okay, but that's not the proper interpretation of that verse. Jesus is talking to the church, and he's saying, I'm on the outside looking in in your life. You shoved me out the door. You slammed it, you bolted it, and you turned off the light and went to bed. And that's pretty rude, but Jesus doesn't get offended, and so he's knocking. And when you choose to wake up out of whatever stupor that you're in right now, when you choose to get up and open that door and allow him to come into your life once again and allow him to to do that work he wants to do in you, He'll be there knocking. He's waiting. That's a message to the church, you guys. Wake up. He's at the door of your life. He wants to come in. He wants to fellowship with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. You guys, too often, we settle for just the negative side of Christianity. You know what I mean by that? Fire insurance. That we ask Jesus to come into our life so that we don't have to go to hell, so that we don't have to face the judgment of God. And, I, and I'm afraid of His wrath, and so I ask Him to come into my life, and then I leave it there. I'm cool with that. That's all I wanted, Jesus. Thank you. I appreciate it. And Jesus says, you know, there is a positive aspect to this as well. It's not just my mercy in the sense that I'm not giving you what you do deserve, but there's a there's a positive side to this there's a gracious side to this where i want to give you something not just keep you from something but i want to give you something that you don't deserve i spared you from what you do deserve but now i want to give you something you don't deserve and many of us are just satisfied with the mercy of god many of us are just satisfied with fire insurance thank you lord that's all i wanted and you know what people call that in the world that they call that using jesus as a crutch That's what that is. But what Jesus has for you and for me is a relationship where he says, all right, you've opened your life to me. Now I want to come in and I want to do some amazing things in you. I want to have a living relationship with you. But it comes through death. And you know what? Many of us don't want to die. We like our life the way it is. We like to be in control. Remember that bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot? That ain't good. God's not your co-pilot. God's either in control or he's nothing in your life. If God's your co-pilot, you got problems. God needs to be the pilot. Get out of the way and let him fly the plane. Otherwise, you're going to end up crashed into the side of a mountain somewhere. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, man, I cannot wait for that day when I stand before the Lord, when I no longer have to deal with this flesh, when I no longer have to deal with everything about this life, when I'm standing before the Lord in my new body. And you know what? That's going to be awesome. But for many of us, we kind of think that Until then, God wants us to be miserable. 
Until then, we just are sort of biding our time until we, we get out of this horrible pit that God has us in. No, God wants you to live victoriously, joyfully, abundantly today. Eternal life starts today. The resurrected life starts today. Man, he's got such great things for us, you guys. Are we going to allow him to do those things in our life? Or are we going to continue to be content in mediocrity? Are we going to continue to be content in saying that we want to know him, but in reality not being willing to take up our cross and to follow him and to die to ourself? Everything that God has for you. I mean, we talked about that a lot in Ephesians, right? that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is at your disposal. Peter tells us that everything we need for a life of godliness is afforded to us. It's there. But guess how we unlock the treasure chest of all of those blessings? Death. Death to self. And until we're willing to pick up our cross, die to ourself, and get out of the way, we will never enter into all that God has for us. You remember Joshua? We're studying Joshua on Wednesday nights. What was the first thing that God said to Joshua as he was about to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, which is a metaphor for the abundant life that I'm talking about? What was the first thing that God said to Joshua? Moses is dead. Moses is dead. Do you not think Joshua wasn't aware of that? I think he was. He, he knew. But God was reminding him, just like Paul is reminding us, and for us to hear the same things is not tedious, but for us it is safe. That Moses is dead. You need to die. You need to recognize that you need to get out of the way and let God do his work in you. And it will come through the cross. Picking it up. And following him. It's an amazing life. It's filled with difficulties at times. It's filled with struggles. Being crucified doesn't feel good. But that's the message of the cross, you guys. For me to give you anything short of that would be for me to lie to you. Would be for me to tickle your ears so that you can feel good. And then I stand accountable for that. That I may know him. Do we want to know him? Ask yourself that today. Do you truly want to know Jesus? Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. God, it's it's really not comfortable, Lord, to uh, to talk about this stuff. Lord, it doesn't, it doesn't make us all happy and want, want to just jump up and down, Lord. But in reality, that's where that joy and that fulfillment will come from. God, these are hard things for us to, to conceptualize. Lord, these are hard things for us to apply, certainly. Lord, this is difficult, and that's why you said the way is narrow. And few there be that find it. Lord, that that statement is pregnant with meaning. Few that be 
that find it, Lord. And we want to be those that truly want to know you, not to play games, not to have religion, not to draw near to you with our lips, but have our, our, our hearts far from you. Lord, we, we want to know you and the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your sufferings, being conformed to your death, Lord. May we commit that to memory, God. May we meditate upon that today and throughout this week. God, may we not leave here being just unchallenged or having it go in one ear and out the other, Lord, not having our hearts pierced. God, we want these truths to go down into our heart and to make a difference in our lives, God. We want these truths to propel us out into our mission field, the community that, God, you have called us to reach. And until we, Jesus, make a decision to take up our cross, God, we are a danger to your kingdom. We're dangerous to you, God. Lord, help us to realize that. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you may email us at info at calvarycrookcounty.com. Or if you would like to write to us, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thank you for listening, and God bless.